today we're going to look at a powerful passage uh, where Jesus gives us an incredible life-changing metaphor. We're just going to kind of take it verse by verse today. It's just my favorite way to look at God's Word because I believe that when we study God's Word that God changes us, that He transforms us, that He helps us to become the people that He's calling us to be. In this series, we've been talking about this concept of surrender. And remember, we're talking about it from a biblical sense, in that inside of every one of us, there's a battle that happens, a battle between the perfection in which God created us, we were made in God's own image, and the sinful nature that we all have, we, that we, and we choose to sin uh, time and time again in our lives. So when we face a decision between right and wrong, the question is not whether or not if we will surrender, because it's a battle between God's way and Satan's way. The question is, to whom? To whom will you surrender? Will you surrender to God's way in your life, or will you surrender to the way that Satan would have you to take? It's a choice that we make each and every day. It's an ongoing decision to surrender. Uh, last weekend, uh, we had a, a celebrity guest preacher here, did we not? It's great to have Pastor Mark Rowland back here with us. Brought us just a powerful, powerful message last week. I enjoyed watching it online. Uh, he talked about the fact uh, that salvation, it's not just a one-time decision, it's an everyday decision, right? Not that we lose it, you know, like every single day, but it's a decision every day to make Jesus the Lord, to make Jesus the leader of our lives. This is what it means to follow him, to surrender our lives to him. I surrender moment by moment my heart, my will, my actions to his lordship. The basis, basis of being a Christian is to say Jesus is Lord. And remember, there's no part-time Lord positions available, right? To have a Lord means someone is in charge. So I put Jesus in charge of my life. Now, Jesus, in the, we've been focusing a lot in this series on the Upper Room Discourse, it's called, which is John 14 through 17, where Jesus is giving us uh, some of his very last words before he is crucified. Uh, John records these in more detail than any other gospel writer, and there's such powerful words that help us to understand him, and they'll help us to understand our role as his followers. Today, Jesus, as he often does, he's going to use a, a metaphor, and it's a, a metaphor, kind of a, a metaphor from gardening or farming, if you will, uh, that may be a little distant from Ohio, but that's okay. Uh, a few years ago, Jennifer and I, we got to go to California, take a little trip. Uh, it was just the two of us. We, went, we rented a convertible, and we drove the Pacific Coast Highway. That's fun stuff right there, if you've never done it. I may or may not have got a speeding ticket, but I don't want to talk about that one today. But, but we got to experience so many cool things out there. One thing that we drove through uh, was uh, areas where there were a lot of vineyards. It's known for that out there, right? And I was amazed at the complexity of vine keeping, right? Uh, maybe you've seen this before where they, they, uh, the, the vines are in neat rows. Uh, they're, they're, well, uh, they're well supported. They're pruned, all these kind of things. And it's not just a matter of you put a grapevine out there and hope it grows some good grapes. No, there's a whole lot of work that goes into this process. Now, Jesus himself lived in an area where farming was, was a way of life. Uh, for us as suburbanites, it, we're a little bit more distant than it. In fact, uh, we did a study, 63% of Anderson Hills folks think that grapes grow in Kroger, actually. 
we got our own wine bar there. It seems only logical, right? I mean, come on. But, but regardless, we know, that, we, know, we know that this is a lot of work. And, and so Jesus, uh, his followers would have been familiar with this. Uh, and so Jesus, uh, he jumps in with these words. John 15 says this, I, Jesus, am the true grapevine, and my Father, God the Father, is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so that they will produce even more. You've already been pruned and purified by the message I have given you. Remain in me, and I in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches." Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Anyone who does not remain in in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything that you want and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great glory to my Father. Okay, so Jesus starts it off, verse 1, I am the true grapevine, and my Father is the gardener. Now, in the book of John, there are seven I am statements where Jesus says, I am, and then he continues to give kind of some extended illustration of who he is so we understand more and more about his character, his nature, our relationship with him. This is number seven. This is the final of these I am statements. I am the true grapevine. My father is the gardener. He picks a a metaphor that was very familiar to the Israelites. In fact, in the Old Testament, the Israelites were referred to as a grapevine or a vineyard by five different Old Testament authors. A grapevine was kind of a national symbol for them in certain ways. In fact, we've got an image here of the temple in Jesus' day, what it would have looked like. You see there's gold kind of flames at the top. That next row of gold is actually a grapevine, okay? This is a way that they identified themselves. The interesting thing is, every time in the Old Testament that they use a grapevine to refer to Israel, it's actually a negative reference. So I don't know if they didn't do their fact-checking well or why they chose this as like a metaphor for themselves, but it actually had often been a metaphor of judgment for them. For example, Jeremiah 2.21, God says, I was the one who planted you, choosing a vine of the purest stock, the very best. Like we're talking Napa Valley quality here, right? How did you grow into this corrupt wild vine? So so you were like a vine like we saw on the screen earlier. That's how God chose Israel. And yet then God looks at Israel and is like, you're just like a grapevine planted out in the middle of nowhere. You're not very productive. The squirrels are eating all the grapes, right? Like what in the world happened? This was not, not how it was supposed to be. See, Jesus is calling on this familiar metaphor, and he's saying that I am the true grapevine. He's showing that he himself is the true Israelite. 
God had called the people of Israel to be set apart, this city on a hill, that when others would look at Israel, that they would see how great God is, that they would see the holiness of God, this people set apart who lived differently, who treated others differently, that this was the, the, the picture that they would give of who the Lord is. But they failed. Time after time after time. Instead of worshiping the one true God, they'd often worship idols. They'd be an adulterous people, a people who would break God's heart time after time after time. But God didn't give up on him. He could have, but he didn't. Instead, he sent his son, Jesus, who came down from heaven, and Jesus is like the perfect, the ideal, the true Israelite. He comes, and he lives the life that Israel had messed up so many times. 33 years, no sins. Gives his life on the cross, dies for my sin and for yours. He didn't owe the debt, but he paid it. I owed it, he paid it. And so because he paid it, I can have eternal life. You can have eternal life. He gave his life not just for a select group of people. He gave his life for the entire world. That all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So there's so much hope. There's so much freedom in Jesus because our sin problem had to be dealt with. And Jesus was the only one qualified to do it. So he says, I am the true grapevine and my father is the gardener. Okay, so Jesus, God the Son, is the vine. God the Father is the gardener. Where do you and I fit in? Well, we are the branches, right? We are the branches in this metaphor. And that sounds good, right? Till we get to verse 2 here. Let's check this out. It says uh, that he cuts off every branch of mine that does not produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do produce fruit so they'll bear even more. Uh-oh. This is where it gets real, right? You know, I like the idea of being the branches until these things came around, right? It's a little less comfortable, right? We read this verse, you know, and it really describes two different things. It says that there's some dead branches that he's going to go and just cut off, and then there's some other branches that he's going to prune. Now, these are a little big for pruning, but I don't like small illustrations, right? They're not as much fun, so I had to bring in the big tools here. So Jesus is saying that God the Father is this gardener, and and he cuts off that which is dead. He prunes back that which is productive. Let's uh, let's start off with the the pruning business, okay? We'll we'll leave the other for later. He prunes that which is productive. He prunes the branches that do bear fruit so they will produce even more. This means simply to cut away that which is excessive, or perhaps that which is dying or or not effective in this branch that is actually producing fruit, so they can produce much more. Now, I'm guessing most of us, maybe none of us have, uh, very few of us would have grapevines, if any, but you've probably got trees, right? And maybe you've had a tree that has these sucker branches on it. You know what I mean? You've seen that before? Those are not good, right? If you have those things, you've got to get out your pruning shears. You've You've got to cut those things off. Why? Because they... These, uh, they, they, they take away, they take away from the energy, the, the food that the rest of the tree needs. They divert the tree's energy into growing things that aren't productive, in fact, will ultimately become harmful. So these sucker branches have to be pruned away. 
any, any good tree owner is going to do this, right? That's, it seems like pretty basic stuff. And it's a reminder of the fact that pruning is both painful and profitable, okay? It's both painful and profitable. I don't love pruning in my own life. I like to think that everything I've got, I need. But the fact is, that's not always the, the case. That's not always the case. There's things in me that God has to come and he's got to prune away if I'm going to actually bear fruit for him. What are the sucker branches in your life? Maybe they're sins or other things that you're putting in the place where God alone should be. Or maybe they're things that aren't necessarily sinful, but they're distractions. You know, they're, they're taking you off course. They're, they're taking you away from, from where you should be. God wants to, to prune these things back in your life, right? God wants to come into your life, and, and maybe there's some friendships that are just, they're destructive, and they need to be cut away, right? Maybe, maybe there's some habits that are really just distracting you or, or harming your relationship with Jesus, and he wants to remove those. Maybe there's some hobbies. Maybe it's a dating relationship that just needs to go. God's been telling you it needs to go, and you've been just holding on to this thing. But we've got to prune it back. We've got to prune it back. Maybe it's even a job. Maybe it's the constant pursuit of more and more and more. And we've looked at these things and said, they're not a big deal. They're not really a problem. I can live with them. I can tolerate them. It's all good. Nope. God wants to prune them. Because if you're going to be productive, if you're going to bear the fruit that God wants you to bear, it's not going to come with a bunch of sucker branches growing, okay? If we're going to have good fruit, it's only going to be because God has pruned us. God has snipped away those things that we don't need. Pruning is both painful and it's profitable. Verse 3. You've already been pruned and purified by the message I've given you. This was true for the disciples, by the way, because the disciples had already been with Jesus for three years. They've been listening to him, experiencing his teaching, all this good stuff. It's true for us, too, when we read the Word of God, when we worship, when we pray, all these kinds of things, that God uses these to make us more and more like him. Verse 4, remain in me and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine. And you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine. You are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. What does it mean to remain in Jesus? Uh, we often interpret this word remain, or other translations say abide, sometimes we interpret it to say believe, right? Like, okay, well, I believe in Jesus. I gave my life to him like in 1985, so great, I'm remaining. Next verse, what do I do? Well, it's not just that. It begins with belief, but it continues into more than just that. Like, belief is like step one, but it's an ongoing daily decision to say, Jesus, I want to abide in you. I want to live in you. I want to give myself fully to you. I want you to be the Lord, the leader of my life each and every day. The original language has kind of a nuance in it that means to walk in step 
with Jesus. To remain or to abide in Jesus is to walk in step with him. Like, for example, there's a, a, there's a band in the Columbus area you might have heard of. Um, they, we think we got an image of them. Oh, yeah, these guys. Um, they're literally doing Michael Jackson moonwalking down the field. Are you kidding me right now? Like, I don't know how in the world you get a band to do that, but that's pretty incredible, right? And that only happens if they've been abiding, if you will, if they've been marching to, if they've been listening to the director all week long, if they've been studying that which the director gave them, if they've been, uh, if they've been reading, if they've been practicing, if they've been walking this thing out day in, day out, right? They are walking in step. They're marching in step with one another, and it's flawless. It's incredible. This is abiding. This is remaining. Why? Because I didn't focus on myself. I focused on the director and the director's plan. I remained, I abided with the director, if you will, and we all did this together, and look at what happened. Uh, here we've got another one, uh, another uh, band example. This guy is into himself. He's got his own trumpet cam, but he's pretty good. Maybe he's making his OSU tryout video here, right? We can, whoa, oh no, that's rough. Uh, got to get back up, got to get back in step. Oh, there we go. All right, now we're good to go again. Hope nobody saw that. Oh, wait, trumpet cam, bad idea. Shouldn't have done that, right? It's the difference between a guy who spends his week wanting to be seen, right, so he works on the best selfie shot he can do, versus one who focuses on abiding with what the director wants to do, walking in step, marching in step, so I know what the, what's next because I've been reading, I've been studying, I've been practicing, I've been doing this. This is abiding. For many of us, our abiding is much more about us. We're like trumpet cam guy here. We just want everybody, hey, look at me, check it out, look at what I'm doing, I'm awesome, yeah, this is great, bam, down we go. Pride comes before a fall. Are you abiding in Jesus? Really? Are you abiding in Jesus? And you might be saying, well, you know, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing, but I don't know if this is really true. Kim, would you give me a hand here? I don't know if this is really true here because, I, you know, I work hard on, uh, on my own. You can come right up here. Uh, I, I work hard on my own, and I can produce some good fruit, right? This is good stuff. Like, look at what I did, right, Kim? You can try it. It's good stuff. Take a bite out of that thing. It's wooden. Sorry, isn't it? My bad. <laughs> Sorry. That wasn't nice of me. Thanks, Kim. Now nobody will volunteer for my illustrations anymore. You can produce fruit, sure, and from a distance, it might look great. It might look shiny. It might look nice, but let me tell you, if you are not connected to the vine, it's fake. It's plastic or wood or whatever the heck these things are made of, okay? It's not the real deal, and from a distance, it looks all right, but boy, when you get up close to it, you don't want to eat this thing. It wasn't made with the life source. It didn't come from the source of true life. And if you and me were going to produce real fruit in our lives, we've got to stay connected to the vine. We've got to stay connected to the true source of life. Because in him and him alone is the source of life. God the Father is, wants to prune away that which is not us. But we've got to stay connected to that vine. To stay connected to Jesus. Verse 6. Anyone who does not remain in me 
is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. Now, when a branch is not productive, the gardener cuts it off and it quickly begins to wither because it's disconnected from the life source. If you've ever cut off sucker branches, you know how this goes. The next day, they don't look so good because in just that short period of time of being disconnected, they're dying. They don't have any more life in them. And, you know, these, this passage, it contains great words of hope when we abide in Jesus. But it also contains these words of judgment. Jesus talks about what it's like if we're apart from him. There is no spiritual fruit apart from Jesus. And there's no source of eternal life. This is serious stuff. You know, there's, there's a piece of me that would like for it to say, anyone who does not remain in me can just hang out on the vine and go along for the ride. Don't worry about it. That's not what it says. I'm not here to edit the Bible. I'm here to teach the Bible. And, and it's really clear that what God does in these situations. If you want to have eternal life, you have to remain connected to the vine. All of us were created by God. We live on this earth. Eventually we die but that's not the end of our existence. It's the end of our time here on earth. The Bible tells us that it's appointed to people once to die, then the judgment. We stand before God. What do we answer for? Well, is it how great we are? Like how hard we worked? Are we a little nicer than our neighbors? Nope, because that's not good enough. God's standard is God's holiness, perfection. I'm not there, neither are you. The best one of us in this room, whoever that may be, I doubt it's me, whoever that person is, not there. Mother Teresa, not there. Billy Graham, not there. No. You can't, simply cannot work your way into a right relationship with Jesus Christ. And he's really clear that there is no life apart from him. Anyone who does not remain in me is like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. The Bible is really clear. There's a real place called heaven and a real place called hell. And these are the options when, when we die, right? And if you want to live with Jesus eternally, that life begins in the here and now. Okay? The kingdom of heaven is not just a someday kind of thing, right? It begins when we begin our relationship with Jesus and we begin to live into this life that God is calling us to. If you want to live independently from Jesus here on earth, why would you expect to live with him throughout all of eternity? It doesn't make any sense. He himself is the source of life. I am the vine, Jesus says. You are the branches. Another place Jesus refers to himself as the door. You know, at my house, and I'm betting at your house, we have a front door. It has a lock on it. If you come to our house, you're only getting in if we open the door for you, or if you have the code, right? That's, or something very large that would break through the door. But Jesus, he's stronger than my front door, right? You're not, he is the door. And you might say about my house, you might say, well, that doesn't seem very kind and welcoming. Why don't you just take the door off, put a sign out front, says, everybody welcome, it'd be good, right? I don't do that, and neither do you, because you love your family, and so do I. Because I don't want evil coming into my house to harm my family. 
Jesus is the door. God's standard is holiness, and he's the door, okay? We have to choose, am I going to have a relationship with him so I can enter into this house? I'm not going to get there just on my own. You see, God loves all people, but God hates sin, And we all have sin, and it's got to be dealt with. And Jesus is the one who paid the price. The Bible is crystal clear. We can't accomplish this on our own. It's not by our own works, but according to his mercy that he saved us. It's because Jesus came and he paid the price that I could never pay. He he gave his life for me and for you, right? And so so when, when we talk about heaven, we're talking about a place without sin, Sin doesn't go into heaven because, well, we see how it works out with having sin around. That's here on earth, and it's not working out so great. We're called to, to a place ultimately to heaven where it's different. But we've got to have Jesus pay our, our price to get in there. And you might say, well, I don't like this concept of hell. Great. Don't go there. <laughs> it's Trust Jesus as your Savior. Like, God's will is not for anybody to go there. That's not what God wants. It's why God sent Jesus to give his life for you and for me so that we could have eternal life. Nobody says it better than C.S. Lewis. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there would be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek will find. Those who knock, it will be open. Friends, there's so much hope in this teaching. Verse 7, if you remain in me, Jesus says, and my words remain in you, you will have anything that you may ask for anything that you want, and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings glory to my Father. This is so powerful, you see, that when I give my life to Jesus, that he begins to transform my will so that my will looks more and more and more like his will. So instead of I wanting everything to be looking like the direction I would want it, I want it Jesus' way. I want to march in step with him because I've tried it on my own and it stinks. I fall flat on my face every single time. I fall short of what God's calling me to. I need him. I need Jesus. I need to walk in step with him. So I want to ask you today, who is your vine? Who is your vine? Jesus lays out a crystal clear picture that he's the vine. We're the branches. And maybe for some of us, we look at our lives today and we realize that we've been trusting We've been connecting ourselves to a lot of fake vines. Where do you go when you're hurting? What matters most in your life, really? Is it your house, your income, your assets, your 401k? Is it a car, your kids? Is it an addiction or a substance? Is it a relationship that you've put as central? Is is it a hobby that everything else in life revolves around? Is it your glory days? Is it pornography? Is it an affair? Is it fill in the blank? 
There's no other vine. There's no other vine in this world that can satisfy. There's no other vine in the world that brings eternal life. There's no other vine that is here for us today that is real and lasting. Anything else I put in the center, we call that idolatry. So today, I want, I want for us to receive from the true vine, the one who gave his life for you and for me. And before we eat from this table, we're going to take a few minutes and just abide, remain, walk with him, walk in step with Jesus Christ, our Savior. Would you pray with me? God, I confess that I mess a lot of things up in my life. And I need your forgiveness. In a few moments of silence now, we confess to you our sins. Thank you, God, for your forgiveness. Thank you for your love. In the name of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. We are thankful. Jesus, we want you to be the center. If there are things in our lives, maybe they're not even sins, but things that we are connecting to as some kind of vine, Would you just reveal those to us now by the power of your Holy Spirit? God, we just want to be connected to you. Would you free us from these other things that we've attached ourselves to? We're sorry for settling for fake fruit. We want to bear real fruit for your kingdom, Jesus. God, are there things in my life that need to be pruned away? our busyness. Maybe it's our failure to keep a Sabbath. Maybe it's a struggle to spend time with you during the week. Whatever it is, God, I just pray against any sense of shame that we might feel right now. And I just pray that you would help us to abide joyfully with such a joy to walk in step with you, Jesus. 
maybe we've stumbled in our walking with you. I pray for the one who feels down today. Maybe is questioning whether there's any hope left. Jesus, would you just stretch out your hand right now to her or to him? Help them back onto their feet. To know that they are loved, that they are cared for, forgiven, restored. Thank you, Jesus. Finally, God, would you, would you help us to bear good fruit for you? Kingdom fruit. I pray that through us, not just as individuals, but as a body together here, that you would bear fruit for your kingdom that is so incredible that when people see it, they would know it's not of us. Yeah, we might be able to make some nice and shiny objects on our own, but they fail. They fall short. We only want real fruit. We want kingdom fruit. We want fruit of changed lives. Fruits of, fruit of souls saved. Fruit of the hungry being, being fed, the naked being clothed. The refugees being helped. The single moms being loved on. Kingdom fruit, God. Would you do that in and through us? Thank you for a few moments of abiding with you, Jesus. And most of all, thank you for your sacrifice. I could never earn it or deserve it, but you freely gave it. Thank you.